Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. You can also find me on my other podcast, Straight Up Paleo. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, send it in to podcast at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join the Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. I cannot wait for you guys to hear this week's episode. I've been very excited to release this one because this week we are talking about one of my favorite topics, gut health. I am so grateful to have had Dr. Michael Ruscio on the show. If you're unfamiliar with him, get familiar with him. He is one of my favorite functional medicine doctors to follow, and I love reading his work. He has released an incredible new book recently called Healthy Gut, Healthy You that basically covers everything you could ever need to know about gut health, and I highly recommend it. I've read it many times. So if you're a gut geek like me, you'll definitely love that. But like I mentioned, Dr. Ruscio is a functional medicine doctor. He's a researcher, author, health enthusiast, and he is best known for his work when it comes to gut health. And I was so excited to be able to chat with him, ask him all of my questions. And I think that you guys are going to be really interested in this as well, because I know a lot of you are interested in gut health too. I, I truly believe that a healthy gut is the key to overall health. And I think it's really at the root of many health issues that people struggle with. So this is something I'm really passionate about. I also obviously have my own history struggling with gut issues and I've just seen how addressing that has helped transform my life. So I think you guys, well, I don't think, I know you guys are going to get a ton of value out of this episode. Dr. Ruscio has so much knowledge and is an expert on this topic. So I'm just really appreciative that he came on the show and was willing to share all this with me. And speaking of gut health and its importance, I want to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Just Thrive Probiotic and Antioxidant. This is actually one of the probiotics that Dr. Ruscio himself recommends in this episode, unprompted by me. He didn't know that I love this probiotic. I just asked him what he liked and he recommended this probiotic too. So I have been using this probiotic for a while now. It's one that I recommend to my clients, my friends, my family members, because I have noticed such great results with it and it works well with everybody that I've ever recommended it to. It actually is the first and only 100% spore-based probiotic that arrives alive in the intestines and produces antioxidants. So two for one, you get antioxidants in there and you get the probiotics. It's amazing for supporting digestive health and also immune health. And the strains in Just Thrive were also actually proven in a published study to help heal leaky gut in 30 days, which is something that a lot of people nowadays struggle with thanks to the state of 
our food supply, and our stress levels. Nowadays, we're all busy bees, but this probiotic is a total game changer. And if you think that you don't have gut health issues, I just want to remind you that in addition to supporting digestive health, it's also incredibly useful for athletes. If you want to recover from workouts faster and stay healthy, it supports your immune system. This can help people with allergies. They might not realize that the root of their allergies is something going on in their guts. It also helps with healthy weight management. Sometimes people who are struggling to lose weight find that once they get their gut health in check, things even out and they reach their goals. This also has a huge effect on stress and mood because we can live stressful lives, but 90% of our serotonin is produced in the gut and beneficial probiotic strains like Just Thrive can be really helpful in elevating the serotonin levels in our gut. So this has a wide variety of applications in our lives and I highly recommend you check this one out. You can go to bit.ly slash just thrive crw to check out this probiotic you can get your bottle it doesn't require any refrigeration gives you a 30-day supply pretty easy to go pretty easy thing to add into your routine and i think that you will feel much better so once again go to bit.ly slash just thrive crw to check out just thrive probiotic and antioxidant and if you try it i would love to hear what you think because I love hearing from you guys and finding out what you're into, what's working, what's not. So let me know how that goes. Speaking of things I'm into, I want to do a little giveaway for you guys with a product that I really love. Well, they have many products I love, but if you follow me on social media, you know that I love the Dastiny Nut Butters. They are delicious and so high quality. They're all organic, raw, stone ground. They even have some, they've sprouted almond butter. So it's really high quality. When I'm looking for nut butters, I want to make sure that they're 100% organic and raw. It's really important. And you can taste the difference between nut butters that are raw and organic versus those that are not. It tastes totally different and I did not believe that until... I tasted it, which is why I am so obsessed with Dastiny Nut Butters. And they also have seed butters too, some of my favorites. So they have the classics like sesame tahini, coconut butter, almond butter, but they have this sprouted almond butter that is truly the best almond butter I've ever tried in my life. They also have cashew butter. They have some things that are fun like hazelnut butter, They have pumpkin seed butter, which I put on everything. It is so good. They also have sunflower seed butter and my most recent obsession, watermelon seed butter. I'm sure you haven't tried that yet, which means you need this. And wild pine nut butter, which is amazing. So, so many different options and I'm going to give away a jar to someone who's listening. So, All you have to do to enter this giveaway to win the nut butter of your choice or seed butter of your choice from Dastiny is simply leave a rating and a review on iTunes or share the podcast in some way. You can share it on your Instagram stories or your Instagram. Make sure to tag me. But no matter... Which way you enter, please take a screenshot 
and send it in an email to podcast at christinaricewellness.com and that's how I'll look at all the entries and you also have to be in our podcast Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. There is one other way to enter. If you go on Instagram and leave a comment on the post that corresponds with this podcast episode and leave a comment on there and tell me which nut butter you would want and what you would do with it and make sure you're following at Destiny brand on Instagram as well then you can get another entry in that way so that's what you have to do share the podcast in some way and be in the podcast Facebook group or you can leave a comment on Instagram and make sure you're following at Destiny brand and that's what I have to do to enter. And this giveaway is going to run until June 18th, 2018. So you have a full week to get in those entries and you can enter as many times as you want. U.S. entries only, unfortunately. I'm sorry for my international friends, but there will be more for you, I promise. So that's the giveaway. I'm in a very giving mood because I'm in an excellent mood because I finished my Nutritional Therapy Association program and I feel like it's summer and I'm planning some really fun things for you guys, some really awesome content and it's gonna be great. And now that I'm done with this program, I'll have a bit more time on my hands So I am going to open up my schedule for a few more clients and I'm also going to see, I'm going to open up the option for a select few people if you are in Los Angeles and want to see me in person. Prior to this, I saw all clients via Skype and I've decided that I'm going to open up a few spots for in-person clients. So if you're interested in that, shoot me an email at christina at christinaricewellness.com and I can send you all of my service info. If you are looking for a nutritional therapy practitioner or a health coach to help you work through any of your health and wellness goals, would love to work with you as we can see if we're a good fit together and if you're not in LA then no worries we can work together over Skype like I do with the majority of my clients so very excited to bring in some new faces get to know more of you and a few people have been asking me about my paleo women lifestyle program I will be running another group probably in the next few weeks maybe next month working out the details still But if you want to make sure you find out when that is on sale, make sure you're on my email list, which you can sign up for on my website, christinaricewellness.com. And if you want to learn more about the program, just go to bit.ly slash paleowomenlifestyle. The self-study option is open right now if you don't want to do the group program, although the group part is so much fun. I'm actually planning a social media detox for all of us because we were all chatting in our group about how we just need to take a step back from social media because it can be overwhelming. So that's going to be really fun. I cannot wait for that. So that's the update with that. And I think for now, that's pretty much all I have. So now that you know what's new and happening with my life, 
let's go ahead and hop into this conversation with Dr. Ruscio and chat all things gut health. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Dr. Ruscio. I'm so excited to chat with you and I'm just obsessed with all things gut health. So I can't tell you how excited I am to talk about everything related to the gut with you. Well, we're two gut geeks. We can get along just fine then. <laughs> I think we definitely will. Um, I want to start off just maybe for some people who aren't familiar with you, can you share a little bit about how you got interested in functional medicine and got interested in focusing on the gut? Sure, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you the short version of the story. But when, when I was in college, I was pre-med. I knew I wanted to go into medicine, but I was young, uh, 20, 21 maybe, um, and didn't really know what I wanted to do specifically within medicine, but I was trucking along and I also played lacrosse and, and generally felt pretty darn good. And I also was doing some personal training at the time and I was very into health and fitness. So I was exercising, I was eating a very healthy diet, I was getting enough sleep, I loved what I did. So everything in my life was in good order. And then for reasons unbeknownst to me, I started having fatigue very bad insomnia, brain fog, um, bouts of, I guess you could say, depression. I started feeling cold for the first time in my life. And I went to three doctors, a internist, a GP, and an endocrinologist, thinking, okay, I'll make an appointment with these doctors. That's what they do. They'll figure out the problem. They'll fix me, and everything will be fine. And I got no answers from any of my conventional doctors. I think they were trying to help, but they were looking at me. They said, yeah, your blood works good. You're, you have good muscle mass, low body fat. You um, have healthy blood sugar, triglycerides, cholesterol, blood pressure, you know, all, all the boxes check. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing really that we can do. Okay, so that put me in a really precarious situation where I then went on the internet and I self-diagnosed myself with adrenal fatigue and hypothyroid and metal toxicity. And I did the <laughs> adrenal protocol. I did the thyroid protocol. I did a urine test that said I had high levels of toxic elements like lead and mercury. And I did a detox protocol and nothing really helped me. And it wasn't until I found a functional medicine doctor who diagnosed me with a parasitic infection that I actually found the root cause of the problem. And it was only treating that that allowed me to improve and, and finally see a long-term improvement with how I was feeling. So I learned the importance of a start with a gut kind of philosophy very early in my career. And then as I went into alternative medicine, I started noticing that a lot of my patients and a lot of clinicians actually were doing the same thing I had done back in college, which is chasing around a lot of symptoms and using natural treatments for those symptoms, which are all fine and good. I'm not, I'm not criticizing those necessarily, but if you apply the wrong treatment to someone, then you're not going to get an optimum response. If you're trying to convert someone's or, or support the conversion of someone's thyroid hormone, but the problem is being caused by an imbalance in the gut, then that's really going to be a, a ineffective line of treatment. And so now I've become very passionate about helping people understand how impactful the gut is and how important it is to start with the gut. Not to say that the gut is, is a panacea and it's going to be the cause of every problem, but it's important to have a good hierarchy and, and a good kind of clinical algorithm to work through so that you use the right treatments at the right time so as to get the optimum response with a minimum am, am, amount of effort uh, input into the system. So 
that's kind of the uh, the long short of, of my journey to where I am at present. That's really interesting. Well, when you were going through all of this in college, what were, what were you studying? So I was a kinesiology major, which is essentially uh, a division of, of exercise science, plus doing pre-med, which gives you all your chemistries and, and physics and and um, biological sciences. Mm-hmm. But I was also studying, I did some study with the Czech Institute. Um, you know, I read like every book out there, right? Uh, Metabolic Typing and um, Liz Lipsky's book and Wilson's book on adrenal fatigue. So uh, between that and also some study with Paul, the Poliquin Institute, which is a, a more so kind of a fitness and, and sports performance outfit, I, I had a lot of good information kind of in, in the natural health and medicine circles because unfortunately and, and ironically, a lot of the academics that you get in your formal training are more textbook knowledge and, and uh, weren't super applicable. I could draw out the Krebs cycle and, and uh, you know, give you all the pathways of actin and myosin binding for how that caused a muscle to contract. Um, but a lot of the more practical stuff I got from kind of in-field research like, uh, like I just mentioned. Yeah, and I mean, I think nutrition information is a big piece in this, and like, how much formal nutrition education did you learn in school? Well, in my graduate studies, there was there was some, um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's a it's a valid criticism that a lot of health and medical training is is fairly deficient in, in nutrition training. If that's where you're going, I would yeah, absolutely agree with you there. I was just like, I'm like genuinely curious. Like I always ask every doctor I chat with how much they got. And some people say they got a semester. Some people say they got five hours. So I'm just always curious um, because you know a lot about nutrition. (laughs) Right. And a lot of that was uh, really, really self-taught. And I, I, when I was younger, I did a lot of seminars Uh, when I was, you know, doing my, my uh, graduate study training. I I did a lot of seminars at the same time. But, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of dogma also, um, you know, and, and we can maybe touch on a few of these things, but um, gluten-free, there, there's definitely a lot of dogma there. As, as helpful as it is, I see more patients than I'd like to admit come in scared of food and gluten is the number one culprit and it's having a detrimental effect on their lives because they're they're so afraid of food now because of the gluten indoctrination and certainly Avoiding gluten can be helpful or a, a gluten restriction for others can be helpful. But the other side of this conversation is sometimes the overzealousness with identifying foods that can be problematic can cause a an, an overestimation of how problematic that food is and therefore an, an overavoidance of said food. And then people living a very difficult lifestyle that they may not necessarily need to. So uh, I know I'm kind of going back and forth here, but there, I mean, there's so much, there's so much yeah. in this realm of gut health. It's, it's almost hard to you know, pick a, a good jump off point. Well, it's, it's complicated because I mean, our, isn't like our emotional health related to this as well. I mean, if you're stressed out about how you're eating, that's not going to help <laughs> your gut. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what happens sometimes is a patient comes in and I review all of their history and notes and paperwork and you can get a sense that th- this person is withdrawing from anything enjoyable in their life. And, and they are just getting progressively deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole of health and wellness so far to the point where they're actually 
making themselves sick in attempts to be healthy, which is a very deep irony, but it mm -hmm. exists. And sometimes simply me having the conversation with them of, hey, I think you're a bit too restrictive. I'd like you to broaden your diet. It's okay to have a little gluten. It's okay to have some grain. It's okay to have some FODMAP. I'd like you to you know, call up a friend or a family member and go out with them, have a little bit of fun, think about your health less, research on the internet less uh, you know, every, every week and try to put some of that time into a hobby or old friendships or you know, rekindle some of these things. And they come back a month later and they feel phenomenally um, improved. And sometimes that's all you have to do. So that, I mean, I don't know how, how, um, deep the, the audience, you know, gets here with, with some of this stuff, but sometimes that's a, a key piece to put together. Well, no, I think it's really important you brought that up because I noticed that a lot. I think people have researched too much. A lot of times, most of the people listening to this podcast are that type of person. You know, they're diagnosing themselves with histamine intolerance and, you know, they can't, they can't eat FODMAPs and they can't eat gluten and dairy and they can't eat, you know, this and that, no sugar and sulfur intolerance and all of these things. Um, so I think it's good to hear that sometimes we, mm -hmm. we've kind of gone too far down the research rabbit hole. Yes, and it, it's yeah. important, I think, with with identifying some of these diets or these sensitivities, it's important not to just keep accruing different labels and thinking that that's going to be a fixed a fixed diagnosis with you know with, with a non changing prognosis, if you will. Meaning, okay, I'm gluten sensitive, I'm FODMAP sensitive, I'm histamine sensitive. People internalize those labels and and they forget that. Typically, what that means is you need to go through a period of reduction of some of those things and then reintroduce them. Mm -hmm. And typically, what people do is they just make some modifications to their diet so they're not eating a high histamine food at every meal and a high FODMAP food at every meal. And they simply take a little bit of stock to plan some variety in their diet or, or not overdo things that may be problematic. And they can still go out to dinner. They can still have wine. They can still have garlic and onions. Sometimes they, they can still have all these foods. It's not that they have to avoid someone – or I'm sorry, avoid some of these foods in acute fashion forever. It's almost like if you had a knee injury saying that the way I am the day I blew out my MCL is how I'm going to have to live forever, mm -hmm. meaning on, on crutches and a knee brace. It's like, no, you're going to get better and you're going to be able to eat more. But I think the, the problem – that sometimes occurs is people think they're never going to be able to do more and they keep kind of restricting themselves into a more and more difficult way of eating. And then that becomes very challenging and it becomes emotionally difficult to deal with. And then you have this kind of downward cycle. And uh, it's just important to be aware of that because these things should be used in the short term to help you heal and identify things to be cautious with. But then in the long term, just like with a blown out MCL, You'll be able to rehab. You'll be able to do more and get, you know, quote unquote, back on the field and, and be okay. I'm really glad you said that because I think it's really common for people to either read something online and institute it. Like, let's say, like, they go low FODMAP for a bit and helps them feel better. And then they just think, okay, I'm going to eat low FODMAP for the rest of my life. And they don't even try and go after the root cause of why they might be reacting to FODMAPs. Or, you know, they went through a protocol and then they're dressed assuming that because, you know, maybe they had SIBO, they have to eat like that forever. Um, so I'm really glad you, you clarified that. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I try to, to, to write a lot of this into my book because, you know, a lot of the book was 
reflections on conversations I've had with patients in the clinic Mm -hmm. and knowing that if this is happening in my patient population, it's probably happening all over the place. And so these are important things to be integrated into the storyline to help people not learn about FODMAP and then go to the extreme of low FODMAP all the time and not learn about gluten sensitivity and eat like they have celiac disease forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's definitely... um, it's sad that it's true, right? That, yeah. that, um, but it is, it is true. And I, and I think maybe what's happened is that the pendulum has, you know, swung too far in the direction of restriction. And now we're, we're, we're bridling it back a little bit, realizing that, okay, you know, we need to be, you know, progressive, but also sensible with, with our dietary recommendations. Yeah, definitely. I personally experienced this. I had a case of candida for about a year and I truly believe half the reason why I couldn't um, get rid of that overgrowth for so long was because I was so strict, like clinging to my anti-candida protocol so much and it was stressing me out. Um, and once I kind of loosened up the reins, I got rid of it. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, I'm curious, what are like, I mean, there are so many different problems that we could find with the gut. Um, what are the kind of the most common things you're seeing in your, in the clinic? Well, um, from a from a dietary perspective, I, I I think people needing to avoid either inflammatory foods or foods that produce gas, for for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. you know those those are the two most common dietary modifications that I think people need to make and and to remove inflammatory foods, and I'm using that term loosely. But the paleo diet will do a good job of reducing inflammatory foods and a low FODMAP diet will do a good job of removing foods that lead to a lot of gas production. Uh, and that's kind of level one. And, you know, then we can kind of move into level two because I'd like to think about this not so much in, you know, here's the list of problems, but rather here's the best sequence or hierarchy to apply the available therapies. And, and the reason why I found that to be effective is people oftentimes try to reduce their gut health down to one thing. It's, it's my SIBO. Yeah. It's my H. pylori. And they forget that the, the gut is really like an ecosystem, right? It, it's infinitely complex. And sometimes what will be good for uh, so what will be good for someone is a recommendation that's not good for SIBO, yet that person has SIBO. And people have a really hard time thinking broader because oftentimes what happens is you learn about one or two things and then you make all of your gut decisions based upon those one or two things, not realizing that there's 18 other things that you haven't factored into your plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like to start people off with diet and I think that the two more important factors to, to first uh, include into the recommendations are inflammatory foods and then foods that produce gas. Uh, and, and so that's where I'd start. Um, and then we can kind of dig through, you know, to level two, if, if you want to go kind of down that path. I do. But first of all, I mean, so what, for people listening, what do you mean by inflammatory foods? So inflammatory foods, again, I'm using that term broadly, but gluten, dairy, soy, um, and of course, processed foods and, and, you know, all the fillers, the litany of fillers that, that are in processed foods like preservatives and and sometimes excipients and, and colorings and dyes and flavorings. Um, that's a, a very good place to start and, and focusing mostly on fresh unprocessed foods like 
fruits, vegetables, meats, fishes, uh, eggs, nuts, and seeds. Um, so inflammatory foods are, are foods that for, again, using these terms kind of loosely so as not to get buried in, in some of the minutia, yeah. may may elicit an inflammatory or an immune reaction in the body. And it may not be a, a full-blown diagnosable allergy like uh, someone who can't eat peanuts or their throat will close up, which is kind of like anaphylactic IgE-mediated allergy. It, it may be more subtle. Um, so this would include things like food intolerances, food sensitivities, um, uh, and I use kind of the, the broad term inflammatory foods, but, but foods for lack of a more descript, uh, way of, of, uh, describing it, what would be foods that may elicit a inflammatory or an immune response in the body. Mm-hmm. And before we like dive in further, besides inflammatory foods that are pretty common in the standard American diet, what else is like contributing to so many of these gut issues that a lot of people are struggling with. So do you mean the, the food component of gut issues, like like food sensitivities or just gut issues at, at large? I mean both. You can go either direction. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think a lot of this fundamentally has to do with our environment. And there there has been a lot of gain in the public health arena from – the increased sanitation that we have, and also the ability to use things like antibiotics early in life to prevent things, uh, you know, and infections that can potentially kill a child. Um, but, you know, with that comes a biological trade-off, and the trade-off of having a cleaner environment. You know, there's there's less parasitic and or almost no parasitic infection. There's less infantile death. There's cleaner water, uh, what have you. Um, along with that. You know, you you lose some of the stimulus that the immune system needs to prevent things like an overreaction of the immune system, which causes things like allergy, food allergy, environmental allergy, food sensitivities, uh, or autoimmune diseases. And so, our environment, especially the environment that's presented to children for the first few years of their life, while their immune system and their gut microbiota, which develop kind of in tandem is all developing, that seems to create this somewhat hyper-reactive immune system. And that includes the gut and also the immune system systemically. And I think for a large part, that's where a lot of this is coming from. Now, I'm not saying that we should throw out antibiotics only, you know, when needed in select cases. I, I do think everyone's on the same page with not endorsing over-utilization of antibiotics. But I'm not saying to throw out that and, and other advents in, in modern medicine and modern hygiene, but it's just understanding that sometimes when you solve one problem, you create another because there's kind of these biological trade-offs. So people in third world countries or hunter-gatherer bands don't have the life expectancy and they have a higher level of infantile death, but they also have less autoimmune conditions mm-hmm. uh, and inflammatory conditions. So I, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, if someone needs to take antibiotics, what can they do to sort of help mitigate the effects? Well, probiotics can help. Um, probiotics, and if it's a uh, a child or an infant, probiotics plus prebiotics can help. Also, making sure that you're working with a doctor who is going to use antibiotics 
as discriminately as possible and, and, and not use them when not needed. Be, because we do know, for example, that for every few months you can delay the first time a child is given antibiotics, you mitigate the, the negative impact. So there have been studies done looking at what happens long-term to a child when they're given antibiotics for the first time at six months compared to nine months compared to 12 months and so on. And they found in this one study in particular, for every three-month delay in administration of antibiotics for the first time, there was a corresponding decrease in the incidence of development of atopic dermatitis uh, and I believe it was asthma and seasonal allergy. So just kind of, you know, some of the yeah. Some of the easy to track markers that that can give you a purview into into one's immune health. So, delaying the use of antibiotics, but also using probiotics. There have been some studies showing that the earlier the administration of probiotics occur, the more immune benefit they have. And then also breastfeeding can be very important to do your best to to breastfeed your child. Um, I'd say at least six months, you know, a year if you can ideally, but that will also help mitigate any impact from antibiotics if they're being given antibiotics while they're breastfeeding. So I think that a lot of us, you know, we hear, oh, we should be having probiotics, but what what probiotics should people be looking for? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so there, there are foods, there are many foods that actually give you a nice assortment of different probiotics. So I would say... Try to incorporate at least a few servings a week of whatever probiotic or, or you know, fermented food would or does appeal to you. So kimchi, sauerkraut, kombuchas, um, you know, uh, yogurts, you know, all those I think are, are fair game as sources of dietary probiotic. But also there are supplemental probiotics. And this gets confusing, uh, understandably, because there's there's hundreds of of probiotic products out there. But if you look at the research, what you see is that probiotics can really be broken down into about three, four categories. And it can be helpful to understand that because then instead of trying different products, you know, um, probiotic five or, you know, Jason's probiotic natural or, you know, gut friendly probiotic eights, you know, all these different names, you go from product to product to product, just thinking, oh, when am I going to find that magical fit for me? But perhaps you're not realizing that you're just trying a category one probiotic, another category one probiotic, another category one probiotic. So you're just trying reiterations of the same category. So, when you understand the categories, you can try one product from each category, and if you have a good response to that category, great. And if you if you don't, you can move on to the next category. So there's about three, four categories. The first is lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominated blends. So most of the species you'll see in the probiotic, if you read the label, are lactobacillus strains and bifidobacterium strains. That's category one. Category two is a Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a healthy fungus form of probiotic, and it'll contain just Saccharomyces boulardii. Category three, we can group into a um, soil-based organism designation, or sometimes they're also known as spore-forming probiotics, and these contain different bacillus 
strains. So it might be Bacillus coagulans, Bacillus lichenformis, Bacillus subtilis. And then category four, we could place in there E. coli Nissel 1917, which there are some very beneficial strains of E. coli. That I don't talk about as much because you can't buy it in the U.S., so it's it's less of an option for people. Mm-hmm. But if you focus on category one, two, and three, then that can help you consolidate the hundreds of products down into just these three categories of probiotics. Okay, that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, but so from there, I mean, how do you how can you tell though if a brand is trustworthy? Like there are so many different brands offering so many in each of those categories. You know, right. Um, I think it's really overwhelming to people and just the, I mean, also maybe you could touch on the difference between if they're require, if they require refrigeration or not, mm-hmm. does it matter? So category one and two do, but it's also important to mention that they don't have to be refrigerated 100% of the time. So sometimes my patients freak out because, you know, their, I don't know, their, their son was looking for something in the fridge and the mother came home and her probiotic was out on the counter because the son forgot to put it back in the fridge and they call the office and, oh my God, do I have to throw it out? No, no, <laughs> it's okay. Um, the long-term storage should be refrigerated, but you can have the probiotics out of refrigeration for hours or even days without it really causing any appreciable impact, at least as far as I understand this. And I, and I have done some some checking on this. So category, <laughs> category one and category two, um, generally keep, you know, store them in a refrigerator. But if you're traveling somewhere and you want to bring your probiotic with you and you can't refrigerate while you're, while you're in transit, don't freak out. You know, it's not a big deal. Or if you put your pills in your purse, uh, let's say you have like a little pill thing and you, you load up your supplements in the morning and they're going to be sitting in your purse all day until you take your dose in the afternoon. That's okay. Um, don't keep the bottle in your desk for a month and a half, but you can have them out of the fridge for a little while. Category three, the soil-based probiotics actually don't require refrigeration. And then E. coli nissel, I'm fairly certain that also requires refrigeration. And then to reputable brands, yeah, that's that's important because the label claims, the viability label claims are not always met. Um, but, but I also come at this with, with a little bit of caution because there's there's two balances or two endpoints to balance here, which are we want to make sure we have something that's quality, but we also don't want to fall into kind of this supplement company marketing jargon of you need the best probiotic ever made. And the, <laughs> the example I use in my book is you don't need the Ferrari of probiotics per se, but we don't want you driving a car that's going to break down either, right? We, we want the right balance between cost and quality. So what that probably means is that if there's a probiotic that is way more expensive than any, every other probiotic you've seen, it's probably overpriced. But if there's others that are a lot less expensive than most of the probiotics you see, then there's probably something going on there from yeah. a quality perspective. Uh, and I know it doesn't give people super definitive guidelines, but you know, if you look at that kind of practically, um, that'll, it's, it's one safeguard. Another safeguard is, is just to use a reputable company. Um, so if it's a company that you've never heard of, 
I'd be cautious if you are working with a health coach, nutritionist, or or a doctor, and they recommend a certain brand. Then I would, you know, I would look at that brand as most likely to be one that that is quality. Um, and there's something called GMP, which is Good Manufacturing Practices, that many of these companies will hold themselves to. And so, that to to classify as a company that follows GMP, you have to go through, I believe, it's a yearly audit to make sure that. You're keeping your equipment clean and you're essentially following good good practices. So looking for a GMP um, certification on the label can also be helpful. And I think I got all your questions. Or yeah, did, you did. Okay. You're you're great. Wow, thanks. Um, do you have any favorite brands? Yeah, there. I think there's a um, a number of companies that make good brands. We we created a line for my book that goes under the brand of functional medicine formulations. And so this is a, a line of, of my favorite products. Um, I think Claire Lab also makes good probiotics. Megaspore makes a good probiotic. Just Thrive makes a good probiotic. Designs for Health makes a, a pretty good probiotic. Um, Biocidin makes a good probiotic. Um, That's great. Thank so, you. So, I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. There, 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 there's a number of, of good companies out there. Um, I'm probably not hitting all of them. That's <laughs> but, okay. I don't expect you to. <laughs> okay. um, is there anyone who should not be taking probiotics? Yes. Um, now, there's not necessarily a patient subgroup or, or people with a certain condition or symptoms, but it's important to understand that not everyone will benefit from a probiotic. And and so what I recommend is someone do some self-experimentation and take a probiotic for a few weeks and see if you notice any discernible benefit. Now, the benefits can be wide-ranging. We've – and when I say we, I mean the, the scientific community has documented everything from antidepressant effects all the way through – relieving constipation with probiotics. So there, you know, there, there's a wide array of potential benefits from probiotics. So I wouldn't be looking for one symptom in particular to improve, but rather looking for the timing. If shortly after starting a probiotic, you notice an improvement, then it's most likely from the probiotic. Just make sure that you're not taking a probiotic at the same time you clean up your diet and went on vacation and did all these other things, because then you won't know where the improvement's coming from. So try to isolate the variables. Um, but it's important to also keep in mind that probably the most commonly reported adverse event from probiotics is bloating. And so if you have bloating that lasts or, or any kind of turbulence for a few days, that's okay. If you're having a negative reaction that starts proximal to the time that you first started supplementation and lasts more than a few days, and, and specifically if it's beyond a week – then that may mean that that probiotic does not jive well with all the other players in your gut. And and so if that happens with any one of the three categories, I would stop that one and then start the other. And for people who are really sensitive, what you may want to do is start one category of probiotic at a time, give yourself a week or give yourself at least a few days. And if you don't notice any reaction, then add in category two after category one, and then add in category three after you've been on category one and two. Um, if you're not sensitive, you can start all three at the same time. But for people who are sensitive, I, I try to have them really break these things down into mini steps so that they do have a reaction. It's easy to pinpoint where that reaction is coming from. Okay, awesome. 
And are there, but are there any like specific conditions or diseases or illnesses that that population wouldn't want it, or is it just all individual? Pretty much. No, like like I like I said, there's there's not at least not that I'm aware of, other than those who are severely immunocompromised avoiding soil-based probiotics. That's really the only okay. indication. I mean, they've even done studies with category one probiotics, lactobacillus bifidobacterium blends in preterm infants and shown benefit. So you would think that that would be the most sensitive mm-hmm. uh, um, population and they've even shown benefit there. So um, there's not much in the way to be careful with other than if you're very immunosuppressed and using a soil-based probiotic category three. Okay, awesome. Well, something else I want to talk about is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear you talk about it. Can you explain to people what it is and what causes it? Sure. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, oftentimes abbreviated to SIBO, S-I-B-O, is a condition wherein someone has an excessive amount of bacteria that has grown in their small intestine. There should be some bacteria there, but if you have too much, it can become problematic. And so the analogy I like to use is you have bushes outside of your house. Those bushes should be there, but if they overgrow and they start covering up your windows or even you know poking through your windows, then they're overgrown and they're a problem. It's important to clarify that because sometimes people come in to the SIBO conversation thinking you just have to eradicate it completely. Uh, and it's not that you want to kill all the bacteria in your small intestine. You just want to make sure that you have the shrubs, uh, I'm sorry, the, the shrubs trimmed uh, just like you, uh, you, you want to have the appropriate level of, of bacteria in your small intestine. Uh, now, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can cause a number of symptoms. More textbook, we know that gas, bloating, abdominal pain, and altered bowel function, either constipation, diarrhea, or an oscillation between the two, are oftentimes, but not always, attributable to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. However, we're learning other connections which are quite interesting. There has been one study published showing that the treatment of SIBO can help with rheumatoid arthritis, so, so joint pain. Yeah. Uh, there's been another showing a tight association, not a causal link, but a tight association to hypothyroidism. And I can say that I've seen a number of cases where successfully managing the SIBO has allowed someone to go on a lower dose of thyroid medication, probably because thyroid medication is absorbed in the small intestine, and we know that SIBO can interfere with absorption there. So if someone has SIBO and they're taking, we'll just use arbitrary number, right? But, but they're taking five units of thyroid hormone, they may only be absorbing 2.5 of those units. Uh. You get you get rid of the SIBO, and all of a sudden, they look like they're hyperthyroid because they're now absorbing all five of that five units. They go back to their endocrinologist. Their endocrinologist brings them down to only 2.5 units that they're taking orally now. So you're able to, in some cases, and I've seen this a number of times, decrease your dose of thyroid medication. Uh, rosacea, which is a skin condition, a reddening skin condition, has shown improvement after treating SIBO, as has restless leg syndrome. And one of the treatments for SIBO, which is probiotics, has also shown the ability to function as an antidepressant. 
So, I mean, certainly there, there's a lot that SIBO is tied to outside of just uh, gut symptoms. There can be extra intestinal manifestations of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But said simply, it's, it's too much bacteria in the small intestine. And what are some of the causes? Well, there's a few different causes. Um, one could be the use of acid-lowering or, or acid-suppressing medications like uh, Prevacid or, or Zantac. Um, now, motility problems are another. And motility problems mean that the, the ability of food to move through your small intestine has been interrupted or, or, or interfered with. And if someone has had food poisoning and shortly after their food poisoning, they develop the symptoms of IBS, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, then there's a probability, there's a fair probability that they may have had damage to the apparatus in the intestine that allows food to move through. And if food doesn't move through the intestines at the appropriate pace, bacteria can overgrow. Just like if you have you know, stagnant pond water, that allows bacteria to overgrow, but running river water does not. You need to have running flow of food through your intestines to prevent bacterial overgrowth. And if it gets stagnant, then the bacteria can overgrow. Um, immunosuppressive drugs can also be one cause. And... Like I mentioned a moment ago, there's some preliminary evidence showing that in those who are hypothyroid, actually, there's an increased risk of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's also an, an association between, and this comes back to acid-suppressing medication, H. pylori, which is a bacterium that can overgrow in the stomach and cause ulcers and also cause perturbations in one's stomach acid levels. There's also a correlation between H. pylori and SIBO. Um, and also someone's immune system status. If, if someone does not have a very healthy immune system, that may also put them at risk. And there's certain surgical, if people have had intestinal surgeries, um, certain resectionings of the intestine that can uh, cause a condition known as short bowel syndrome and that can put them at increased risk. Um, so those are some of the biggest factors, that potentially antibiotics, that, that's, that's speculation. I haven't seen anything published to support that, but uh, I think probably more so what happens with antibiotics is people develop secondary fungal overgrowths that manifest with symptoms similar to SIBO. And sometimes people falsely attribute that the antibiotics are causing SIBO, but the antibiotics are actually causing fungal overgrowth, which presents with a symptomatic profile similar to SIBO. But anyway, I'm getting a little, <laughs> a little bit deep there, but uh, those are some of the causes. No, that's really interesting. Well, okay, I want to get more into that, but before... Before I go, since you touched on like acid reflux, can you talk about what's really causing acid reflux? Well, with with acid reflux, there's a few different factors that can that can cause acid reflux. Foods are one, and how this works is foods can it, certain foods. If foods don't agree with you very well, with a given person very well, they can stimulate a histamine response. And histamine actually signals acid production. This is why one of the classes of acid-suppressing medications are actually histamine blockers. They're, they're, they're histamine antagonists um, because histamine has a role in stimulating stomach acid production. And this is probably why people 
have observed, when I eat X food, I always get reflux. Part of that is likely because that food is not well received by the immune system. And what the immune system will do as part of the immune response is secrete histamine. This is also why some people notice that they, if they have reflux, their reflux gets worse when their seasonal allergies flare because it comes back in part to histamine. So one of the things that causes reflux, indigestion, stomach burning, and this kind of high or overly acidic syndrome can be foods. Now, the bacteria H. pylori can also cause a it, – it's not only an increase in acid. H. pylori can also cause a decrease in acid. And this has to do with with um, the region of the stomach that it overgrows. And then it may also have to do with the host bacterium you know, interactions sp- specifically. But H. pylori can cause ulcers. It may cause reflux and, and so bacteria. And there's also some preliminary evidence showing that SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can also contribute to uh, reflux. And, and this may be because of, of gas pressure. And so it may not be a problem with acid, but it may be acid becoming de, um, compartmentalized because there's more gas pressure and that gas pressure is pushing open valves that should keep acid in one spot. But when there's too much gas, the gas pushes open the valve and then the acid can leak through that valve and cause what feels like too much acid, but it's just acid, for example, getting into your throat when it shouldn't. Um, and then there's autoimmunity. Uh, if someone has thyroid autoimmunity, for example, they have a slightly increased risk of potentially having autoimmunity against cells in their stomach that can or that are responsible for the production of acid. And so autoimmunity is is one trigger of lower stomach acid. Um, and then the I, I guess you could say autonomic state of the host, if someone is in a stress response or in a relaxation state, that can also affect acid. And this may be why some people notice when they're under more stress, they have more reflux. Um, so that's not an exhaustive list, but that's that's a uh, a few of, of the bits and bites regarding stomach acid. Okay. Thank you for clarifying all that. <laughs> I think it gets oversimplified and people just, you know, pop a, an acid suppressant, <laughs> um, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Getting back to SIBO. So... What do you typically recommend in terms of a general treatment protocol? Like, obviously, it's going to be different with each person, but what does treatment for SIBO generally look like? Well, this is one of the things I lay out in the book, which, you know, essentially is a progressive protocol that works for, you know, and 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 it's not even just SIBO, it's just varying degrees of digestive imbalances Mm -hmm. because for some people all they'll need to do is reduce inflammatory foods and all the symptoms of SIBO go away for other people they'll have to do that plus six other things to get an ideal symptomatic resolution but as a starting point I like someone to either go on a paleo type diet or a low FODMAP diet now if we're talking about IBS symptoms specifically, um, because not everyone may know if they have SIBO. So, uh, you know, if they have general digestive symptoms or SIBO or both, then a low FODMAP diet may be a better starting point than a paleo diet. Um, but either one of those diets would be a good place to start and give that a couple weeks. 
if the diet's working for you, you should notice an improvement by two to three weeks. It's not to say that you'll be fully improved by two to three weeks, but you should be able to say, aha, this is clearly helping. And if it is, ride the wave until you plateau. And then if you plateau at a 90% improvement level, then you're pretty much done. If you plateau at a 30% improvement level, then we want to escalate our therapies to you know, other tools in our toolkit. And a good next tool would be probiotics. And this is because probiotics have been shown via one meta-analysis, which is essentially a study where you review the available studies to summarize the evidence. And this is very important because people oftentimes argue one study versus another study. And, and that's it's, it's very it's, – it's poor practice to look at one study and conclude anything. A, a better practice would be to summarize what the entire body of evidence regarding an issue says and then look at what the trend in the data is. So, and that's what a meta-analysis does. So meta just means big analysis, obviously means to analyze. So a meta-analysis, I believe, of, of 10 or 11 studies – found that yes, probiotics can adequately decontaminate the small intestines of a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So that could be a good next step. And the reason I, I provide this in kind of a step one, step two fashion is so that if someone only needs diet, they can perform a diet and see how they respond. If someone needs more, they can add in these therapies one at a time so that they can assess how effective each therapy has has been. And not need to do any more treatment than their body requires. And, and that's important because there could be two people who have SIBO. One person goes low FODMAP, then adds in probiotics, and they're feeling great. Another person needs to do low FODMAP, probiotics, enzymes, antimicrobials, an elemental diet, and then they get the result. So it's important to, to try to kind of codify the, uh, the treatments so as to allow people to find the appropriate level of treatment for their needs. But, but that's step one and step two, and we can go on to step three if you'd like. Um, let's go on to step three after I ask this question. So sure. let's say low FODMAP um, starts, you know, it gives them a lot of improvement. Like is somebody who had SIBO going to need to stay like on the lower carb side of things forever? Great question. Great question. Um, no, most likely not. Now, gosh, there's a there's a bunch of things to talk about regarding low FODMAP. Um, one is, and and I and I think this is important to to address is is exactly your question, which is if I go low FODMAP, will I have to be low FODMAP forever? No. Typically, what I recommend people do, and this is generally speaking, what the research literature is also concluding, is to go low FODMAP. And then once you've realized the, the full benefit from the low FODMAP diet, then reintroduce to try to find the broadest diet possible. Now, most of the research studies recommend reintroducing after four to eight weeks. I would alter that and say, ride the wave until you feel like you've plateaued. And I think most people will probably plateau, yes, after four to eight weeks. But I wouldn't broaden your diet if you still feel like you're improving, right? Unless you're saying to yourself, oh, I'm dying for X, Y, or Z food. I don't need to reintroduce all of the high FODMAP foods, but I'm dying for one or two. If that's the case, okay, we can make a little compromise and have you bring back in one or two higher FODMAP foods. And as long as you don't have a negative reaction to them, you can continue eating them. But essentially, go on the diet for 
a short period, realize the benefit from the diet, and then try to find the broadest diet possible. Now, most people, in my experience, and also reflected in the research literature, will be able to eat a lot of the foods that they were previously cutting out. But they may also notice that there's a handful of foods that they're either very sensitive to or they can only have a certain amount. So they can have one or two servings, but if they have in a day three or four servings, they'll be a little bit bloated or their stools will get a little bit loose or they'll get a little bit backed up or what have you. So that's really, you know, I, I think some of the salient points with do you have to be low carb forever? Now, another question that pops up here is if you're if you're on some degree of FODMAP restriction in the long term, is that dangerous? Is that detrimental? And I do not think that's that's true. Now, the the short backstory here is because the lower FODMAP diet reduces the intake of foods that feed bacteria, some of put forth a posit that you'll be causing a loss of healthy bacteria and this could be potentially damaging for your gut. And there doesn't seem to be any consistent evidence to show that there's a that there's a global impact on diversity. Yes, you see certain strains, most namely bifidobacterium counts go down, but you see other bacterial strains go up. More importantly, you see a reduction of histamine, that inflammatory immune molecule that we talked about, and you also see a normalization of some of the cells, specifically serotonin-producing cells and, and peptide YY cells that are abnormal in IBS patients become more normal and more like that of healthy controls after eating low FODMAP. So there's definitely a degree of therapeutic benefit from the low FODMAP that I think should quell anyone's concern that a longer-term low FODMAP diet is somehow dangerous. But I would also only recommend you restrict the amount of FODMAPs that you notice you need to and and nothing more. Okay. I mean, this is kind of more general, but I think you, like, I'm wondering just for general people, I think now, you know, ketogenic diets are becoming really popular and people are wondering, like, long-term, is that going to have any negative effects on gut health? Well, I'm more concerned with the long-term ketogenics diet's effect on metabolic health. I, I do see patients who get burnt out on this diet. Women who lose their periods, men who lose their libido, people who start getting tired, having insomnia, and just feeling generally fatigued. And I think it's because for some people that diet is too metabolically stressful. Um, so what I'm more concerned about is, is people putting themselves under too much stress. Now, there are some people that I think ketogenic works well for in the longer term, but I would be on the lookout for if you're doing ketogenic, do you start noticing you're fatigued, you need caffeine, you're not sleeping well, you know, you're waking up in the middle of the night, or you're waking up an hour before your alarm is supposed to go off and, and you're unable to fall back to sleep, uh, you're irritable, you don't have as much energy for your workouts, your libido is starting to go down, or if you're a woman, your cycles are starting to get off, or, or you're just completely amenorrheic and not having periods. I'm not as concerned about the gut health ramifications, uh, and I don't think we fully understand what the gut health ramifications are, but I, I would only be eating a ketogenic diet in the long term if you clearly notice you feel better on that diet. And and um, I, I you know the the impacts of a truly ketogenic diet long term on the gut I don't think we fully understand. But okay. if if you notice you feel a lot better 
eating that diet, my general supposition is what is best for the host is probably best for their gut. And so if someone's feeling great on a ketogenic diet, I'm assuming that overall it's going to be the best thing for their gut health. Um, but I, I still think the jury's partially out on that. Okay, interesting. Also, just just to clarify, I mean, what do you one you use the terms like low carbohydrate diet? What what does that mean? Like, how many grams of carbs are we talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's important to delineate what what is the line between ketogenic and low carb, right? Yeah. Um, so ketogenic typically means someone's having about fifty grams or less per day of carbohydrate. And where we draw the line in terms of a low-carb diet, I don't know that there's a standard definition here, but I look at a diet that's around maybe 100-ish, maybe up to 150 grams of carbohydrate per day as being a low-carb diet. And then if we get maybe you know to 175 to 200 grams per day, that's a moderate-carb diet. And if you're much above maybe 250, that's a, a higher-carb diet. Uh, again, those are just rough approximations, mm-hmm. um, okay. but uh, really, it's 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 getting into ketosis. It's going from a low carb diet to, to ketosis that I think is where is what is most problematic for some people because some people may do better on a lower carb diet, mean, meaning they eat 125 ish grams of carbs per day, um, but they're not going that extra mile to get their carbs down to 25 grams. And for someone who's counted this out. You'll notice that to go from low carb to ketogenic feels like a mile in in terms of how much of a difference it makes in your diet because you have to be super restrictive on carbohydrates to get yeah. all the way down to ketosis. Yeah, can can ketones feed candida overgrowth? You know, I've heard that, um, and I think someone sent me a paper that was trying to substantiate that, but I. I don't recall exactly what I what I pulled up. Uh, I, I don't I don't okay. remember being particularly impressed with. It may have been a mechanism or a or an animal study. So it's I mean it's possible, but again, you know that brings us back to this reductionistic thinking on the gut, yeah. right? Uh, and so I would I would look at how you generally feel on a low carb diet because someone may go low carb and they may start having I'm sorry someone may go ketogenic and they may start having diarrhea and they may say ah it's because I'm feeding candida. But well, it may not be candida. It may be because your body's too stressed and it may be that you're not sleeping as well and now that's throwing off melatonin in the gut and melatonin is an anti-inflammatory and we know a deficiency in, in proper sleep leads to low melatonin and that feeds IBS. And so you may be coming down with a stress-induced case of IBS rather than candida. Um, and we could paint probably five other mechanisms that could account for someone having diarrhea on a ketogenic diet rather than candida. Uh, so I think it's important not to get too wrapped up into thinking about these things mechanistically, but just keeping in mind how you feel and try to make all your decisions based upon how you're feeling with a given intervention. Okay, yeah. I was just curious because I hear people arguing it both ways, and I haven't found anything either that's really substantial. So I was just curious if you had come across something. Sure. Um, but going back to SIBO, I want to ask about, like, what can you tell me about hydrogen sulfide SIBO? Hmm. So to my knowledge, there have been two studies published to date on hydrogen sulfide SIBO. One correlated hydrogen sulfide SIBO to symptoms in a a group of patients with IBS. And so they, they did show that compared to healthy controls, when they did breath testing on both healthy controls and those with IBS, those who had IBS had a, had a higher uh, level of hydrogen sulfide SIBO. 
Another study was done that took this a step further that then treated these patients with antibiotics and showed a reduction in hydrogen sulfide gas that correlated with an improvement in these patients' symptoms. So we do know that hydrogen sulfide can exist. Um, and we do know, know that at least according to one study, it can be successfully treated with antibiotics. I would assume the same would apply to herbal antimicrobials. There's nothing published to substantiate that, but, uh, I'd be, I'd be very surprised if herbal medicines did not work for hydrogen sulfide SIBO. There are no good tests for this. There's one urine test that I think is sometimes kind of used in an off-label way. And I, I would not recommend that, uh, testing, uh, even even some of the best testing we have in functional medicine doesn't need to be used that often. So to make a case for a test that is of dubious benefit, I, I think is extremely hard to do. Um, but hydrogen sulfide SIBO may be what is underlying someone's symptoms if they have especially digestive symptoms and they do a SIBO breath test, and the SIBO breath test is negative because hydrogen sulfide will not come up on a normal SIBO breath test, which typically assesses hydrogen and methane. Now, it's also important to, to keep in mind that um, the sometimes it's said that if someone if someone has no hydrogen on their SIBO breath test, they're more at risk for hydrogen sulfide. But that doesn't seem to be the case because one study kind of substantiated that and the other study did not substantiate that. But at the end of the day, hydrogen sulfide does play a role. But my thinking is it's fairly easy to address that with herbal antimicrobials. And I'm sorry, one other thing. If someone has smelly flatulence, that may be one of the not it's not a guarantee, but that may increase the probability that someone does have hydrogen sulfide SIBO, kind of that that like rotten egg smell, that sulfur smell, okay. um, that may uh, be an indicator that they have hydrogen sulfide SIBO. Okay, but so in terms of treatment, it would basically be the same as methane dominant or hydrogen dominant. In my opinion, yes. We don't have great published data yeah. to answer that, but I'm I'm fairly confident that herbal medicines work just as well as antibiotics. Would someone need to start off on a low sulfur diet? Well, we, we think. Um, again, you know, no one's really tested this. Um, and because we have no way of really even diagnosing the hydrogen sulfide SIBO, it's hard to say when a hydrogen sulfide SIBO person would need a lower sulfur diet, right? Because we don't even know if that's actually there to begin with. So then to say that, uh, you know, those people need to go on a – low sulfur diet, it's very hard to piece that together. I I certainly don't think it would be a bad idea, but I wouldn't start with a low sulfur diet. Um, yeah, I think we have good evidence for some of these other diets that we've outlined, like the, the paleo diet or the low FODMAP diet. But the good thing about a low sulfur diet is after a week on that diet, you should be noticing an improvement. And if you don't notice an improvement, then you don't have to worry about it any longer. So um, if someone wanted to run that test and see if it garnered any additional benefit, it wouldn't be very hard to do. Is sulfur intolerance something that is common or more rare? Or like how would someone know if they might be intolerant to sulfur? It's definitely more rare. Okay. Um, and 
the symptoms on this, and I can't say I have the exact symptom profile dedicated to memory, but I also can't say that it seems to have a, a very crisp outline in terms of the, the symptoms. Um, but joint pain, maybe one. Mm-hmm. Fatigue, maybe another. Brain fog, maybe a third. Um, lack of emotional well, well-being, maybe yeah, another. And I do think there's something to the low sulfur diet. Um, and actually, I had some personal experience with this because every vegetable I was eating was a high sulfur vegetable. And and after a while, I started developing fatigue after meals. And I took stock of my diet and I said, hmm, you know, everything I'm eating is either broccoli, cauliflower, kale, chard, spinach, and and I was also eating you know a fair amount of eggs, um, and you know all of that is is high sulfur. And so I just had to make a simple dietary adjustment. I didn't necessarily have to go on a low sulfur diet, but I just had to make sure that I was not eating a sulfur rich or a couple sulfur rich foods at every meal for days and weeks on end. So, um, you know, sometimes it's not to say someone has to go on a full-blown low FODMAP or low sulfur, but take stock of their diet and see if they seem to be overdoing it in any one food group. And if they are, just make some simple minor modifications and that can produce some benefit. Yeah, because I feel like, well, a low sulfur diet is kind of hard. A lot Mm -hmm. of things have sulfur in it. I've been on one before. Um, kind of related to that, well, not really, but histamine intolerance. So if someone is, you know, histamine intolerant and they're on a low histamine diet, is that something, like, how should someone go about addressing that? Because I feel like somebody shouldn't feel like they need to be on a low histamine diet for their whole lives. Yeah. And so a low histamine diet, I think, has much more applicability than a low sulfur diet. Not to say there's not a time and a place for a low sulfur diet, but just clinically, I, I see many more people, uh, or I shouldn't say I, I shouldn't say comparatively. I can I can comment on this, but I can say I see an impressive number of people respond favorably to a low histamine diet in the clinic. Now, your point is absolutely correct, and there's a couple things here. One is sometimes we just have to unwind someone's histamine overload and let some of that excess histamine kind of drain out of the system and let the immune system calm down. And then they can eat more histamine without, you know, much of a problem at all. So uh, that's one. The other is dysbiosis, and and um, we know, for example, a low FODMAP diet, as I mentioned earlier, can reduce diet can reduce um, uh, uh, histamine levels in the blood. In, in fact, it can do so according to one study, eightfold. So an eight times reduction in histamine can be elucidated by a low FODMAP diet, probably because a low FODMAP diet starves bacteria, and bacteria themselves directly produce histamine, and your immune system, when it reacts, also produces histamine. So dysbiosis may be a double negative for histamine because the overgrowth itself, the overgrowth of dysbiosis, can produce histamine, but if that's also irritating the immune system, that's causing the immune system to release histamine. So if you can manage those factors, their their dysbiosis, reduce dietary histamine for a while, let things calm down, then they should be able to bring histamine back into the diet without a problem. Now, they may not ever be able to have a a kombucha with avocado (laughs) and 
salmon that's two days old for every meal and not have any problems. You know, they they may not be able to go crazy with histamine, but they'll be able to eat a very very normal diet and and have little to no uh, reaction to histamine as long as they don't overdo it. Okay, so just to clarify, so let's say like the low FODMAP helps, but then would they have to stay low FODMAP, or would that be essentially kind of helping to treat it? So they would follow the same guidelines with the low FODMAP that we outlined a little while ago. Okay. You know, use it for a little while and then reintroduce. And essentially, that's that's the protocol to follow for pretty much all of these diets is is use them for a term, get to a level of improvement, and then reintroduce to find your your boundaries. And and most people will find that they can tolerate a good number of foods that they were previously restricting, and there's a handful that they have to be a little bit mindful of. Do you ever make use of the autoimmune paleo diet? I do. Um, and actually, we just released a post, I think it was this Monday, that um, – you know, we made this this schematic diagram to kind of help people navigate this, but uh, we kind of put these diets in superimposed onto a pyramid, and a starting point could be paleo or low FODMAP, and then someone could progress to paleo plus low FODMAP. Uh, another option of progression could be autoimmune paleo, and and then probably the most restrictive out of all these diets would be the low FODMAP plus SCD diet. Now, the the autoimmune paleo diet will go a step farther than paleo does in the direction of reducing inflammatory foods. Mm -hmm. And then you have low FODMAP, and if you go farther in the low FODMAP direction, you have low FODMAP plus SCD diet, which goes even farther at restricting foods that can feed and encourage bacterial overgrowth or produce gases. Okay. I just think it's interesting from the perspective of like – Let's say somebody has gut issues and, you know, they want to try low FODMAP, but they know that they are reactive to a lot of foods that are eliminated on AIP, such as nightshades. Like when you're on a low FODMAP paleo diet, it's pretty nightshade heavy. Yeah, I mean. Or it yeah, can it, be. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it can be challenging. And, and so the further up kind of the dietary pyramid you go, the more restrictive you become. Mm -hmm. And and so and this is another thing that I talk about in the book which is give these diets a trial and if you're not getting substantial benefit there might be something besides diet that needs to be addressed in order to get you to that level of improvement. And and using myself as an example, I was never going to fully heal even with low fat, you know, low fatmap plus SED plus AIP until I address that amoeba. Mm -hmm. So we want to give diet its due, its due shake, yes, but we also don't want to try to force a dietary solution to a non-dietary problem. So yeah. you know, it's, and that's where it's helpful to have this broader view and also be considering things like candida and SIBO and everything else. Yeah, definitely. Um, also, how would somebody know if they have CFO as opposed to SIBO? Again, it's you know, there's not any routine testing available okay. for CFO. You have to actually have an, an endoscopic sampling from the intestine. So that it's not something that you can do in routine practice. But um, if you if you treat the gut for dysbiosis, then uh, so if if you treat all dysbiosis under an umbrella, which which is what I do in the book, then you can use herbs that are 
antibacterial, antifungal, antiparasitic, and antiprotozoal. Many of the herbs we use for managing gut health are all they're, they're anti all four of those at the same time. So the beauty of herbal medicines is they can act broadly against dysbiosis. So it's not about necessarily figuring out what is the specific thing that I have, but rather coming back to that hierarchy we were talking about a moment ago, go through your step one, go through your step two, and then dysbiosis is essentially step three. And that will address if, if someone has, let's say, H. pylori plus candida, there are certain herbal medicines that can act against both those at the same time. And, and so it can be challenging to try to get a diagnosis for all these things, especially because, for example, with CIFO, you have to have a gastroenterologist put a tube down your throat via endoscopy and take a sample of that fluid to, to confirm that. So yeah. sometimes it's just not worth going through the rigors of the diagnosis, but you're better off going with an empiric approach, treating, seeing how you do, and then reevaluating. All right. Awesome. Thank you. One last thing, because I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this. In terms of, let's say somebody is struggling with a gut and maybe going through a protocol, what what recommendations do you make in terms of exercise? Or how does exercise affect this? Exercise is definitely one of our foundational pillars with, with diet and sleep and stress management would be exercise. Clearly a foundational pillar. I think the most important thing regarding exercise is to make sure you're getting some movement, so making sure that you're not sedentary, but also making sure that you're not over-exercising. And I know that's vague, so let me let me try to make that <laughs> a, little more, a little more granular. Um, the more stress you have in your life, the less you should be exercising, right? So if you're sleeping six hours a night because you have a an intense work schedule, plus you're taking like classes, plus you're a single mom, um, then you don't have a lot more room to accept stress. So I would be going for shorter exercise sessions that aren't highly intense and maybe only three or four a week. Uh, I mean, if your intensity was really low, I guess you could do five, but CrossFit for someone in that situation would likely lead to a collapse at some point. Now, if you're if you're sleeping enough and, and you have purpose in your life, and you're not overworking and you, you feel like you have your lifestyle in very good order, then exercising vigorously five, six times a week could be fine. Um, the, other, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're over-exercising, fatigue and insomnia, some of those same symptoms I, I outlined before about if someone's going too low carb, it's all the same kind of reaction, right? If someone's under too much stress, whether it's they're going too low carb or they're exercising too much, they start manifesting this typical syndrome of symptoms, which are not sleeping well, waking up early or having a hard time falling asleep, fatigue during the day. They may have brain fog, this kind of, I'm just tired and I feel like I can't think kind of brain fog. They may be craving stimulants. Um, so it's important to keep in mind. Now, also regarding exercise, we know that exercise can be healthy for the gut and actually improve, at least we think anyway, improve the composition of the microbiota or the world of bacteria in your gut. Um, and it, it's also too important to keep in mind that high-intensity exercise training that has little to no rest is probably the hardest on your stress handling system of your body. So if you're doing some kind of class or circuit training workout where you just go, 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 and you're just redlining it for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, that is is the most metabolically stressful. 
And so for someone who's under a lot of stress in other areas in their life, you want to be the most careful with that type of exercise. And finally, I'd say if you had limited time and resources and you wanted kind of the most health promoting activity, I'd say anything that you can do in nature with a friend would probably be the best strategy because then you'll get the benefit of social time or connectedness and you'll also get a therapeutic benefit that we know one obtains from time in nature. So, uh, you know, those are just a few, few things regarding exercise. Yeah. So, well, what type of exercise would be ideal for someone who is stressed out a bit and maybe having gut issues? So again, you know, if, if they wanted to go for a walk or a hike or a run in nature with a friend a couple times a week, that would be great. Or they could do any any type of exercise as long as they were taking rest periods, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be weight training. It could be light weight training that was kind of in a circuit, but they have to rest in between stations and, uh, and let their heart rate come down. Um, it could be running, um, but they'd want to take some breaks. It could be sprint training, but you know they wouldn't be – um, you know, sprinting and resting for five seconds and sprinting again, resting for five seconds and, and really trying to floor themselves. So the the main thing to integrate into someone who's not feeling well and, and feeling like their vitality is, is, is a bit sapped would be to make sure you have adequate rest periods because it's a lack of rest periods that makes the bout of exercise, irrespective of what the specific exercise stimulus is, the most stressful. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That was helpful. Something that's just on my mind because this is the population I see a lot is uh, I see a lot of young women who have really bad gut issues. They overexercise and they have amenorrhea. And, you know, could you speak at all to like kind of the connection between fertility and these gut issues? Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question because Sometimes I feel like a broken record in the office. I, I think probably three or four times a week I have the conversation with a woman who is exhibiting both digestive symptoms and female hormone imbalance symptoms at the same time. So definitely they tend to go hand in hand. Um, and I think what ends up happening is gut problems cause stress And just like we were talking about someone who was going too low carb, losing their periods and becoming amenorrheic, I think gut imbalances like like dysbiosis, SIBO, candida, whatever, can cause an internal stress response in the body that starts to to thwart some, uh, uh, you know, women having healthy levels of their hormones. And we also know that some of the detoxification um, of estrogen and progesterone occurs in the gut. So... Definitely improving one's gut health can do volumes for improving their female hormones. And there's also some herbal medicines that can be helpful to kind of coax the female hormones back into balance. Um, And then minding your overall stress load. Sometimes also what happens is women go on progressively restrictive diets to try to clean up their gut and they end up going on too strict of a diet and they may not be eating enough or they may not be eating enough calories. And now they start manifesting symptoms of female hormone imbalances because of all the stress from that lack of calories or lack of foods, um, sometimes namely carbohydrates. And all we have to do is get them on a broader diet 
which sometimes can happen, can happen until they treat their dysbiosis, but treat the dysbiosis that allows them to broaden their diet, that takes that stress off of the body, and now their female hormone symptoms start to fade away with time. So um, hopefully that answers yeah. <laughs> your question. Yeah, I know that helps a lot. Thank you. I'm because sure, I know a lot of people listening to this are thinking that and struggling with that. So helps to hear it from you because you have so much experience. Um, but thank you so much for answering all my questions. I'm like this was so great to talk to you and you're so knowledgeable. I really, really appreciate you sharing all this with me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Um, could you maybe tell people a little bit about your book and where they can get it? Yeah, the, the book is called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's available on Amazon. And essentially, it's I, I tried to write the most complete guide I could for someone who really needed to improve their gut health. It, it's not a book that's just about gluten-free or just about probiotics, which are which is all fine and good, right? But I wanted to write the book that kind of gave you the quarterback perspective, meaning – Here's all the available interventions for your gut from diet all the way through you know, exotic herbal antimicrobial treatments. How do you apply them and who needs to do what and in what sequence and, and you know, how do you navigate this landscape so as to really improve your gut health utilizing all the available tools and then get yourself to a broad diet with a minimum amount of supplements in the long term. And, and that's what I hopefully think I've achieved with, uh, with Healthy Gut, Healthy You. You absolutely have. It's very comprehensive. I love that book. So highly recommend. Um, <laughs> and then also just where can everybody find more from you in general? My website is drrusho.com, which is spelled D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And we have a month, uh, I'm sorry, not a monthly, a, a weekly article, podcast, and video and for healthcare practitioners, we also have a monthly clinical newsletter called The Future of Functional Medicine Review. And so if you're a healthcare practitioner, you can get information about that on our homepage also. And uh, yeah, that's the that's the long short of it. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, same here. Thank you. Okay. I hope you guys learned a lot from that. You probably took notes. If you didn't, you can listen again, but I hope you enjoyed that. Huge thank you to Dr. Ruscio for coming on my show, answering all of those questions, sharing all of his knowledge. Make sure you check out his book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. You can find him on his website, drruscio.com, and you should also check out his podcast as well because it is amazing. It's called Dr. Ruscio Radio, and he dives into all sorts of health topics on that podcast and you'll probably find it incredibly interesting i certainly do so definitely check that out and if you like this podcast make sure you let him know make sure you let me know i would love to hear from you if you like it please leave a rating and a review on itunes that'll also get you an entry into this week's giveaway so you can kill two birds with one stone really appreciate all the support And I cannot wait to chat with you guys again next time. Bye.